Hey, folks, begging your pardon. Excuse me, sorry to barge in. Now let's skip the tears and start on the whole, you know, being dead thing. You're doomed. Enjoy the singing. The sword of Damocles is swinging. And if I hear your cell phone ringing, I'll kill you myself. The whole being dead thing. Death can get a person stressed. We should have carpeted way more deals. Now we're never gonna see them. I can show you what comes next, so don't be freaked. Stay in your seats. I do this bullshit like eight times a week. So just relax, you'll be fine. Drink your With us today, we have a very special guest. Eddie Perfect is joining us. Broadway fans will know Eddie because he is uh, one of the writers of Beetlejuice the Musical. And also, uh, I guess, debuted first is uh, King, uh, in King Kong on Broadway there. Uh, was that two shows in one season, Eddie? Yeah, two in one season. Not a, not a good idea. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, you know uh, 2015, you picked up from Australia and moved to the United States, gave yourself three years to get two shows on Broadway. I think you're a little bit of a slacker. I know. Well, you know, I would have liked to have taken it a little more easy. Um, <laughs> and those gigs came in, like, those gigs started 18 months apart. Weirdly, like, I started Beetlejuice 18 months before I even sat in a room to discuss Kong. So, and then Kong got to Broadway before Beetlejuice. So it was a very fast process with Kong. And... You know what it's like. You know you're a cog in a in a massive wheel, and so you don't really get a say in when these things happen. So them happening and never having written for Broadway before, and all of a sudden doing two. We were doing the out of town Beetlejuice trial in um, in DC, Washington DC, yeah. while we were in previews for Kong on Broadway, and uh, yeah, that that was. Um, you know, I think I probably need to become a little more American and find a therapist to deal with. All that. <laughs> well, you could do it on an app now. You know, you could just do all your therapy on Can an you? app. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that, that sounds good. That yeah. sounds good. I so like were you uh, Amtracking back and forth from D.C. to New York or flighting it back I was. and forth? Or? I was. The Amtrak was my friend. I, um, I uh, was basically every two days I was going in one direction or the other. And um, it's lovely. Saw some beautiful countryside and some deer, <laughs> a little deer. And, you see Joe um, Biden? You know, Joe Biden's famous for taking the Amtrak. Is he? No, I didn't. I didn't see Joe Biden. But then, you know, a lot of the time I was I was in the um, what do you call it here? We call it economy class. Oh, the, coach. the uh, coach, coach economy. It's the same thing here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. when you were in Australia, you uh, you were a little bit political, weren't you? Um, I have been, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I used to write, I started, kind of cut my teeth writing political satire, pol- political satirical songs. Oh, I'm a really? music theatre trained actor and um, um, and uh, not in any way trained uh, musician and composer. That's all just sort of made mm. up. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I, I graduated from drama school and I was writing comedy you know, a lot, a lot of comedy. So a mixture of stand-up and then writing my own songs and performing sort of one-person shows with my band in comedy festivals. And that's where I sort of cut my teeth. And the early stuff was very much about domestic politics. And then, um, you know, as I went through my career, the, the news cycle went to 24 hours and it got faster. And I don't know if you know much about Australian domestic politics, but we 
we sort of change our prime minister more often than we change our bed sheets. And so, you know, I was in a couple of projects that, that came unstuck just because of the speed at which the political landscape changed. And I was just sort of sick of writing tunes that had a, you know, like a very short shelf life. And so I stopped kind of, I kind of stopped writing political material um, for that purpose. Um, and also because I was, you know, skirting around the edges of writing a musical. I started writing one-man shows where I was creating songs with multiple characters that were like sort of song scenes, and and I was finding them, you know, I was kind of increasingly failing at performing them, and I was like, dude, you just got to suck it up and write musicals. So <laughs> that's what I did, and I left that kind of um, solo thing behind. I haven't done that for a very long time. So you um, were nominated for the Best Original Score Written for the Theatre, uh, a Tony Award nomination for Beetlejuice. And, yeah. you know, what is uh, – when did Beetlejuice start for you and how did it start for you? So um, I think well, you kind of write, I think around about 2014, um, I, I had written a whole bunch of songs for a stage adaptation of Strictly Ballroom that Baz Luhrmann was directing mm-hmm. in Australia. And that was a really interesting process and great to write for the main stage in Australia. But I was never in the room. So I was like the I was like the composer that would call up and go, We need a song for Barry Fife. We're kinda of thinking it's gonna be, you know, XYZ. They'd give me a brief. I would write the song, I would make a demo of it, and I would email it to Baz and he would you know, either give me a bunch of notes or just sort of take it and stick it in the show. But I was never in the rehearsal room. I was never on the wow, creative team. That's interesting. It was a, yeah, it was kind of a weird, like, um, Bowerbird approach to making a musical where I, I wrote a bunch of songs. Sia Furler wrote a couple of songs. There were songs by everyone, and plus, of course, the pre-existing songs from the film. And, um, you know, that happened, and I, um, you know, I, that was a great thing to be involved in, but I also found it really frustrating because... Um, my experience in Australia has always been um, having been a one-man band, you know, writing the script, writing the songs, writing the score, musically directing, casting, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's a great experience, and I think everyone should have a turn at, you know, experiencing what it is like to do all of those different disciplines to understand what goes into them. But at the same time, I think it does affect your ability to write great material because you're not in a collaborative situation. And I really missed that, and I was tired of myself and I was tired of being in a <laughs> creative vacuum and I was lamenting the fact that I would never get my hands on a score because Australia is not um unless you do everything yourself um there's they're not making um musicals there's no sort of system um for really? developing musicals in, in Australia every musical is kind of like an anomaly unto itself you know it happens just through sheer force of will or luck or whatever and you reinvent the wheel every single time so i was kind of whinging about that to my wife i guess it's probably the most accurate way of describing it and she just said buy a ticket and go to new york you know and um all that sounded sort of painfully painfully ridiculous to me because i didn't know anyone i did i bought a ticket and i flew to new york and i just kind of um tried to get into any kind of meeting and conversation I could and um, found an agent and heard um, from my friend Tim Minchin that um, Beetlejuice was uh, in development without a composer lyricist. And I asked my agent if I could pitch um, on the project and he asked them and they said, no, who is this weird Australian guy with a ridiculous name? And 
I uh, I was like, oh, that's disappointing. Now, like they've got it already out to pitch with a whole bunch of writers, and I don't want to extend the pitch to you. And, the, and your stuff is very Australian, and they don't quite understand it. And um, so I said to my agent, what if I just wrote a couple of songs for free? You know, um, surely they can't say no to that. It won't cost them any time or money. And he put that to um, Alex Timbers, the director, and to the book writers. Um, Scott and Anthony, and they miraculously said yes, and they sent me a copy of the script, which was great and very funny and very dark, and right away I knew that it was in my wheelhouse. You know, I love writing uh, comedy, but I also love comedy that has a heart, and I also love black comedy. That's sort of my, sort of the the triangle of happiness for me. And <laughs> I turned myself inside out writing these, these um, pitch songs. I was like, I am going to swing for the fences on this one, and... I wrote two songs, actually ended up writing a third, an opening number, which we never ended up using, called Death's Not Great, and um, collaborated with the book writers. It was really fun, you know, just to kind of get their notes and to work on stuff and to bounce it back and forth, and I'd never I'd never done that before. Like, literally never done that before, work with book writers. And so, yeah, miraculously, I got the gig, and um, so, you know, I was like a little you know, a little puppy that had just been taken out of the rescue shelter. And I, um, you know, I bounded over to New York to meet everyone in the middle of a snowstorm. And um, that was really cool. And we started writing it. And four years later, we opened on, on Broadway. Crazy. That is just it, absolutely insane. I mean, uh, dark, dark uh, Beetlejuice, whole being dead thing. I, I mean... I, I laugh over and over and over, and and certainly part of it is uh, Bright Monster, but part of it is definitely the songs and the lyrics that you've come up with to tell this story and how different it is than the movie. Um, so were you oh, a thanks. fan of the movie? Yeah. yeah, I was, but, you know, like, um, you know, insofar as you can be, I'd seen the, I mean, I'd seen the film and I liked it. That was pretty much the beginning mm-hmm. and the end for me. And, and like most people my memory of it as an adult was very different to um, what I had experienced when I watched it as a, as a youngster. So I went back and watched it again and it kind of freaked me out. I was like, Oh my God, you know, (laughs) because I'd read the script and I'd pitched on the show. You know, I was working on the show by the time I went back and saw it. And, you know, I found it kind of hard to watch because we were telling a bit of a different story. And, you know, I watched it through, um, to kind of really, I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing. You, you, you kind of want to um, immerse yourself in sort of the temperature of the show, you know, what does it feel like? What does it look like? What is the kind of tone of the piece right now? You've got all of that. Now look at the script in front of you and the story you're telling and go, what's the story we're telling um, with these characters, which is, um, I don't know. It's pretty bloody arrogant thing to do, to be honest, but you kind of have, (laughs) you kind of have to be, you can, I mean, if you kind of approached it with sort of kit gloves and intimidation, uh, being intimidated by the source material, which is very easy, then I don't think you're going to write anything good, you know. And one thing that I had to do with the pitch songs, because I think the whole Being Dead thing was the first song I wrote for the pitch. Um, and I knew, you know, I was like going, turning myself inside out going, you know, um, it's going to it's going to change genre every three bars, you know, it's going to be every bit as surprising and wild and crazy as the script is, you know, that's kind of hard stuff to write in a cohesive way. But the biggest decision you have to make at the beginning is, and that's the most important decision that makes 
um, a, a musical adaptation good or not is what do these characters sound like when they sing? Because when I hear Beetlejuice mm. in musical, I'm like, oh, my God, what is Beetlejuice <laughs> going to sound like? And if he doesn't sound good and if it doesn't sound like right or, or necessary or, you know, enjoyable – in some way, it's going to suck. And um, as a, you know, as being a performer really helped, you know, like I was writing these songs in a big hall with boomy reverb. And so I had to cover myself, you know, in a blanket that I took from the house to stop, to block out all the kind of echo and reverb. And, you know, for three months, I was like Beetlejuice under a blanket, making kind of crazy, weird noises and trying to work out how he would sing. And, you know, um, it's probably the most enjoyable three months of my life. You know, it was totally weird when I think back about it. But you know, um, how is he going to sound? How is he going to sing? And and a lot of a lot of the stuff I found kind of improvising into the mic as I was writing stuff. You know, it was pretty weird um, process, but a very enjoyable one. Uh, so when you first sat down, either at a table read or first sing through or things like that with Alex Brightman. Uh, did he look at you like you had three heads and say, how am I going to do this eight times a week? Well, it's interesting because I've got a, you know, I'm, Brightman's got this amazing kind of rock tenor voice. And it wasn't wasn't until we were in D.C. and they were, they, were, they had like one of those video screens promoting mm-hmm. School of Rock. Yeah. And he's like um, singing um, uh, Stick It to the Man on, on this video thing. And it's all like top A's and B flats. And I was like, holy shit, how the hell is he? Like, he's an amazing rock tenor voice. Hmm. When I brought in the material, obviously, originally it was all in my key. And I've got a, you know, a, a lower voice. You know, I've got a baritone, bass baritone voice. Um, and I was like, what do you want to do here? Do you want to like, do we want to transpose everything up? And he was like, nah, I don't. I just need to kind of like abuse, <laughs> abuse my, my voice and wear it in until it sort of sits lower because I, if I'm seeing this stuff at the, at the top of my range, I'm not going to last. But if it's in a zone where I'm never at the uh, edges of my yeah. range, then I can do this eight shows a week. And so we kept it down there. Every now and then there was something that felt like it might be too low for him and we transposed it up and instantly unfunny. Very weird thing where it was like the, you know, the gravel was a really big part of it. And he just found this sweet spot in his voice. And we would have big breaks between development obviously so we do a workshop and he'd sound great we'd come back and he'd have this beautiful sounding voice that was sort of sitting light and high and he'd be like ah shit i gotta get it down i gotta get it down you know and um after a couple of days it would be back in that in that pocket and he could work it from there without um fatiguing his voice because of where it sat in his range and you know like brightman's one of those rare things where you find like a comedic actor which is like the extension of your brain i mean i I would write all day and hear brightman in my head and i'm like to the point where like i we had this one moment where there was supposed to be a transition from one scene to another and in the script it never it was in dc but never ended up ended up in um in uh, broadway but um lydia can't get the handbook for the recently deceased open because she's not recently deceased and so beetlejuice mm-hmm. shoots a, a bird out of the sky kills it and and Lydia picks it up and she uses the beak to kind of open the handbook like a can opener. And it opens and she's in. And then it would transition to the next scene. But the director, um, Alex Timbers, was like, we need something to cover that. And I was like, all right, I'm going to write a reprise of Dead Mum called Dead Bird. 
and it was ridiculous. It was, you know, it's like dead bird, dead bird. You recently were flying, but the noise you made when dying is the sweetest sound I've heard. You know, it was like crazy. I wrote it like in five minutes and just handed it to Brightman. Instantly nailed it off book. Hilarious. We just got into this kind of like really great sync with each other. So I don't know how we found Alex Brightman, but bloody hell, I'm glad we did. He's amazing. So uh, you joined Beetlejuice. Um, you joined the creative team after you had a book and they they were uh, looking for writers and things like that. Uh, you know, your King Kong thing is famous for going through so many writers and you were the last man standing uh, for King Kong. What was that like having, you know, King Kong coming out of Australia and having so many different writers involved with it, but yet in the Broadway production, you ended up uh, really formulating it to the to the New York stage. Yeah, well, you know, that's one of those kind of twisted games of musical chairs. Mm, um, yeah. And I didn't really know. I mean, I, I'd seen it in Melbourne, and I really liked it. In Melbourne, the show was very long, um, very kind of in inverted commas experimental. It felt like a um, like an arts festival show. Mm. It was super bloody loud. It had like tracks from all sorts of people, the Avalanches, Guy Garvey, Sarah McLaughlin, um, you know, um, amazing array of different songs. And the whole thing was kind of like a weird um, uh, audio visual spectacle. And it had like, it was very different to what it ended up being in on Broadway. But I kind of, I liked the spirit of it. And I, I liked that it was very, um, different to what you would expect you know like it wasn't like a kind of a connected book musical so when i was asked to kind of come when i was asked to kind of sit in a room with jack thorne the book writer and drew mcconey the director choreographer and marius devries who wrote the kind of wrote the score you know there's a lot of um just instrumental music because mm-hmm. of all the live action puppetry you know when we originally kind of pitched a um an outline for it. It was, it was sort of like a, a connected book musical, I guess. Um, um, and then something, cha- something changed about, I don't know, like two or three months after that. I did write a bunch of songs that were like songs you would expect to hear in a musical, although they were very much in a kind of electro rock style. And um, there was a, there was a decision made that, didn't want to make this a kind of a connected traditional book musical. Didn't want characters to sing to each other. Um, didn't want that kind of language. That there would be sort of three languages. There would be the, there would be the language of um, the scenes, the dialogue scenes. Mm-hmm. There would be songs, um, and then there would be dance, um, and that included the physical movement of the puppetry. And so the intention from the very beginning was to make something. Um, you know, again, in inverted commas, um, non-traditional. But the difficulty with that is you end up making something that does confuse people a bit. And, and I remember when we, you know, there were, there were two uh, kind of, guess, major issues with um, Kong. One was because it was like a real, like, the whole thing is such a crazy gamble because the puppet does not exist outside the theatre. Like, there is a an incredible kind of structure. It's a giant marionette puppet. It weighs mm-hmm. like 2,000 pounds, suspended from this particular kind of disc that hangs in the theatre. 
Um, it needs 12 people to operate it, to choreograph it, and a director on cans to direct those puppeteers. And it requires um, two voodoo operators who are operating the face and the neck and head, and then a voice operator. And when we rehearsed, obviously, we didn't have any of that. You couldn't have any of that in the rehearsal room. We were rehearsing at New 42, which is where most new shows are in development. And we had, a, we had an actor playing Kong, which sounds like the worst idea ever, a guy being a gorilla, <laughs> like, oh, my God. But it was it was incredible. It was an incredible physical performer, and we were in one space creating a very, um, I guess what you'd call like a kind of a chamber piece. Really, there's only three characters in it. There's Anne, there's Carl Denham, there's Lumpy, and then there's the gorilla. So four characters, and then an ensemble. The dancing was amazing and raw and kinetic, and the scenes were really connected and beautiful. But then when we put the whole thing on stage with the gorilla actual gorilla in the Broadway theater in front of an audience. It was really interesting to see how um, those two things didn't necessarily go together. Um, and from the, and, and the, the audience was sort of generally confused. What is this? Is this, a, is this a, a puppet show? Is this a contemporary dance piece? Is this a musical? I mean, there were only seven or eight songs in the whole thing. So I wrote eight, what, eight songs, maybe less, seven songs for Kong and... 24 songs for Beetlejuice. So very different kind of beast, you know, um, so to speak. And it was interesting. We just kind of had to adapt in previews to the audience, you know. Um, one thing was when Kong wasn't on stage, it was really hard to keep people's interests. Um, just, just the scale of that puppet is so immense. It really does overshadow nuance. And so, you know, it was a very fast and furious time adapting to the audience in those um preview periods and you know i don't know if you've ever been in like a preview period in a new show that's not the not the greatest time to be you know making major creative decisions sure. and of course you had a creative team that aren't necessarily always in a, in, a, in agreement but the show was vastly improved from preview one um to opening night but it was still something that you know um i i i think is its own thing but, but one thing I kind of learned about Broadway is that there's not a huge amount of, like, open-mindedness about things being their own thing. They need, to, they need to fit into a kind of a form that people understand. So we had a real, you know, range of reactions to that show. Um, and it was certainly a wild experience um, and, an, like, an incredibly technical experience. But it was also, like, a, it was also really a difficult one, you know. And um, I think the show is better than it was reviewed. I think there was a lot of, like, you know, we were quite surprised by the level of um, mean-spiritedness and then also quite surprised by the, by the way that that mean-spiritedness in kind of um, the critical response just kind of made up people's minds for them. There's a lot of weird stuff that happens on Broadway. When you're in previews, people get to make up their own mind. But once you open a show uh, and the reviews come out, then people generally seem to adopt the um, attitude of whatever is put critically. And it's kind of hard to undo that. So that was the, uh, that's the nutshell of what happened with Kong. Uh, you know, um, a couple of years ago, you decided to take a leap that uh, many people decide and they, you know, give up their life in Ohio and come to New York. But you came half a world away and you brought your wife and children. Yeah. Yeah. What 
is that conversation like with your wife to say, okay, honey, we're moving to New York? Well, I don't know. You know, like, I'm not going to be writing a book about marriage anytime soon. But <laughs> but you could write a musical about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I, if I was, I've got like, you know, i got like two rules. Two, like mm-hmm. two, they're not rules. They're like, suge- they're like helpful suggestions. One is always have like a spare room that you, that you or your wife can go and sleep. Especially if you've got kids, you know, you got kids coming in your bed. You got, like you just need to have somewhere to go or you're having a fight with your wife. All of this kind of like, oh, we can't go to sleep unless we've, you know, made up is, is bullshit. Because just sometimes you just need to go and sleep somewhere else and then it's all fine. <laughs> so that's one, my one rule. Okay. And then the other one is always have an adventure. Like a shared adventure is the secret to, I think, staying together. Oh. And I'm really fortunate that my wife is like, um, she's, you know, not just incredibly supportive, but she's a really um, smart, adventurous um, person who wants to have new experiences and do all sorts of interesting things. And before we came to, like, immediately before we came to New York, we were in Amsterdam for four months while she was working on a contract. She works in advertising. And so we spent four months in Amsterdam, which was an amazing city. I fell in love with that place hard. And so, yeah, it was hard because we got to New York and the kids hated it. Of course they hated it. They missed their friends. They missed their sure. grandparents. They miss their backyard. You know, we're in a frigging shoebox in this, you know, this, uh, in New York. We're on the Upper West Side, which is a really cool part of town, but we're in a tiny apartment. None of the doors closed because we have to have, mat- like, rugs all over the floor because we've got this super angry lady that lives underneath us that my kids are terrified of. You know, and so it was really um, – it was really difficult, but um, I don't know. We got to a point in Melbourne where we're like, I think we're ready for um, an adventure. But it is really hard, and it's hard being new in a place. Like, I, I, you know, like, um, I, I know it's hard to be in New York, whether you come from Ohio or, you know, Chicago mm-hmm. or wherever you come from in the United States to try and make it here. But, you know, it's, it's you know, like, there's just, which is, so far behind the eight ball here, you know, social security and all the, you know, health insurance and like just trying to understand how, you know, this country works or how New York works. It's, com- you know, it's complicated. And at the same time, trying to um, put on shows and it's not me complaining in any way, but it's been a, um, it's, it's been really big. Plus, you know, um, you know, I'm new and I've got no friends and I've got a, as I said before, like a completely bloody ridiculous name that is real, by the way, but like <laughs> just sounds so bad. Like, and I have experienced like um, teasing about my surname on levels I have not experienced since primary school. Like, it's been crazy here, you know, because it's a terrible, like, arrogant name. But it's been my—I'm 42 years old. I'm not bloody changing it. I've, you know, it's my name. What am I going to do about it? You dropped, uh, yeah, you know, you dropped a little uh, hint uh, about 10, 15 minutes ago when you said you were friends with Tim Minchin. So, yeah. uh, how did that happen? And and did you work on stuff in Australia with him, or was it just through you know common? theater circles and david campbell introduced you or what happened there no um i'm gonna try and do the 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 speediest version i know i um i graduated from the west australian academy of performing arts and tim minchin studied there as well he studied contemporary music there and i Mm -hmm. was not friends with him there uh, but i knew who he was because i used to go and see gigs where he played piano for other people and he's a brilliant piano player and i was in melbourne and i was doing kind of solo shows and I um, 
I spoke to another friend of mine who I studied with who was from Perth and was like, I'm trying to find a piano player because um, I don't want to just be stuck behind the piano all show. And he was like, oh, Tim Minchin has just moved to Melbourne. He's living in North Fitzroy. And I was like, oh, sweet. So he gave me his number. I rang up Tim. I went over to his place. I played Tim a whole bunch of my songs. He's like, oh, I'm doing this same thing. And he played me a whole bunch of his songs. Um, Tim started playing keys on some of my gigs. And there was a point at which he was doing his own shows away um, from me. And then there was a, a point at which um, he, he uh, kind of, left my band to go and just do his own thing and then there was a period where we were sort of tour together um and we would do our own songs or each other's songs together we played at this um club in melbourne called the butterfly club which is crazy 50 seats there's no mics it's literally just the piano at the end of a room and the lighting board was like a one of those um you know, those power boards that was like stuck to the back of the upright piano and you just flick the <laughs> lights on and off if you wanted a certain mood. And it's the scare still to this day, the scariest room I've ever performed in, you know, to stand up there, no microphone, totally acoustic, um, 50 people. It's like being in a living room. It was terrifying, but a really great training ground. And we used to do gigs there. We used to do gigs together where, you know, I'd play piano for his songs. He'd play piano for my songs. Um, so, yeah, we have this kind of history of doing the same thing doing musical comedy at a time when we were both really interested in um, music comedy in Australia was very much about um, the joke and not the music so you know mm -hmm. you would get comics that could play the guitar badly but it didn't matter they were just trying to sell a joke but we were both really um, obsessed with the music being as important the structure of the music um, uh, being every bit as important as the comedy of it writing good songs writing good music and um so we were part of a sort of a, um, a, a movement of music comedy that happened in Australia around about 2005 and we're about, you know, sort of 2003 to 2005. And um, so you, we kind of came up in the same uh, place in the same way. Um, in fact, when Tim was playing for me, he was really fucking frustrated with me and with, uh, not with me <laughs> specifically, but with, you know, how his career was going and, um, you know, like he's a, uh, he's couldn't get any traction. And, um, then we both went to Edinburgh in 2005 and he did a show that just took off. And from that point on, he, he sort of never looked back. He's like, um, he stayed, he stayed in London and he built his career there. I went back to Australia and I just kept my career going in Australia. So we have like a kind of a friendship and a sort of a weird rivalry and we come from the you know a very similar place and so um yeah it's one day like we we kind of dance around each other and we also dance around this subject quite a lot because it's too weird um because we never really quite unpacked what's gone on in the past and it's all been good the world mate mm -hmm. but it also has been competitive one day I, one glorious day when we're 85 years old and neither of us gives a shit about our careers or our egos I would hope that we would maybe do another show together, maybe at the Butterfly Club in front of 50 people. <laughs> so you're, uh, you have two daughters, Kitty and Lottie, and, and they uh, are on this adventure with you and your wife, Lucy. So yep. did, did your parents take you on adventures when you were growing up? Or Yeah. I mean, yeah, my dad was, uh, my dad emigrated from England to Australia when he was a little boy and, um, he was the youngest of 
all of his like kind of five siblings and um they they remain very english whereas my dad very much embraced australia and every um every school holiday we would kind of go on vacations um camping in national parks bushwalking hiking camping that kind of thing so i've so, that was sort of um my childhood long car trips to national parks mm. pitching tents hiking around through mountains which i really loved and you know it was a very it's a reason why you know i love australia the landscape is so beautiful there um but yeah that was um that was my childhood and my dad sang in a in a in a choir the melbourne symphony orchestra chorale um which i joined when i was 17 and my parents are both high school teachers um both sort of very smart laid-back people who um, kind of really, I mean, I never wanted to be a um, music theatre composer growing up, even though I love music theatre and I love music. Music was always sort of like just something I, I just sat at the piano every day and played from year. That was what I, what I did, but I wanted to be a visual artist, and they were, which is ridiculous. I mean, I don't know how I would have gone, but my parents were very supportive of that. I went to art school, um, went to art college, and all that jazz. And then when I changed into music, they were like, yeah, cool, you can do that. And um, yeah, they really just were happy for me to do whatever it was I wanted to do. And they um, they were supportive of everything, which is really lovely, really lovely. I was very lucky. What's interesting to me is that your father emigrated from from uh, London, or did you say London or England? or? Yeah, from England, from Gillingham in Kent, yeah. Okay, so you sort of, you still have family, extended family in England, and how you ended up in New York versus uh, going to write for West End shows. I know. Well, I did go to, on that, on, on that you know, infamous trip in 2014 to kind of like knock down doors, uh-huh. I did go to London. We, it's interesting, the relationship that the Americans have with England, you know, there's a kind of a weird thing going uh-huh. on because sure. of the whole revolutionary war and and that you know there's a cultural kind of divide where um you know england is the land of the well-written play and the great you know the literary kind of playwright tradition and uh new york has this incredible musical theater culture and um there is a little bit of smoothiness about those two things and it's really interesting when um and this is like a tangent but when the when the English try to make musicals. It's very interesting because there's like, oh, this is easy. We can write amazing plays. We can make musicals. But they don't have, and this is a generalization, but they don't have um, that. They, they don't have the love for the form and and the respect for the form that they have here in the US. Um, in here, nobody is, is is ashamed. There's no sense that this form is beneath anybody. There's no questioning of it. It's your art form. It's America's mm-hmm. art form. Um, and it's an incredible art form. And, um, yes, you can be uneducated about it or be, not be exposed to it on the outside and, and judge it. Why are people bursting into song? But I don't think people understand um, the nature of the form and how the idea of creating a world in which singing and dancing is possible and, and which storytelling through music is possible is such a powerful art form and i would say the most easily the most powerful of art forms i don't feel that love and that connection to the form in in the uk and also australia has a weird relationship with london we are like Hmm. kind of like um again a generalization 
But, you know, we are like their offcasts, you know, Australians are the people that they, they, yeah, they sent off to prison and now, God, they're back and they want to write shit. That's annoying to them. And so that's kind of a difficult thing to navigate. It's not impossible, but it requires, um, you know, it requires a lot of tenacity. And I found in New York, I was kind of, I might as well have come from out of space. Everyone was like, oh, you're from Australia. Great. What have you got? No one cared where I was from. They just Mm. cared what I could do and what I could write. And so for me, it was just um, a natural fit because this is the place where people embraced what I was writing and wanted to work with me. Whereas in London, I found that really difficult. Not to say that I would never go there, but um, um, yeah, New York and music theater are my first love. So that's why I'm here. Great. So I, I meant to ask you before when we were talking about the uh, the cast recording of Beetlejuice, are there any songs that got cut in the process just because it didn't fit or things like that that you really loved and that it was hard to let go of? There is about another musical worth of songs <laughs> really? from Beetlejuice. I am not kidding you. I've never... Wow written so many songs in my life and yes some of them suck and some of them are <laughs> you know were cut because they're just terrible but um and, and a lot of those never even made it to the book writers but i wrote songs for scenes that got cut and that's why they went away not because of the song um for characters that changed or got cut um or for moments where we were just like you know this isn't the right song but i, I there are probably about 20, 20 really kind of, I would say, like good songs, like wow. strong songs. I really, really, really want them. Like the producer of Beetlejuice is, would like a guy, Mark Kaufman, amazing mm-hmm. guy, a real cheerleader. He, he would get very upset whenever a song would get cut. And he wants to do a kind of a, um, you know, songs from the graveyard sort of Beetlejuice sure. type album. So, yeah, there is a huge amount of stuff that got cut. And, um, and I kind of, you know, in the beginning, I, I was finding that really frustrating because I remember, I remember actually in one of the second writers workshops calling Tim Minchin and going, dude, my songs are getting cut so much and this is driving me crazy. <laughs> and I was like, how many, how many songs did you cut for Matilda and, um, Groundhog Day? And he was like, oh, I cut one song in Matilda and none in Groundhog Day. And I was like, shit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's unheard you know, of, though. I mean... <laughs> yeah, but also Tim's a very, you know, yeah. Tim's very gifted uh, arguer. You know, like, <laughs> he can he can convince anyone of anything. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see your point. Yeah, okay. And I also don't like to um, to fundamentally change songs. I, I, I just would rather start again and write something new because mm. I always feel like, you know, oh, you know, that your chorus is, um, you know, let's go to dinner that weird example. But I was like, what if it's not, what if it's not, let's go to dinner? Well, let's go to the park. And I'm just like, nah, cause it's like taking somebody's babies and replacing them with somebody else's <laughs> babies and going, look, your babies are back. I, I would know. I just go, they don't belong there. You know what I mean? So I would always write a new song. It just felt easier for me to write a new song. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of songs that were cut from Beetlejuice. And I really do hope we get to, put them out there. The, the original closing number was a song called When, when an Asshole Saves the Day, oh. which, which I loved. I loved that song because it was like, you know, Beetlejuice is the enemy and he's the evil guy. And then all of a sudden, you know, he rides in on the sandworm and he mm-hmm. kills Juno. 
And then everyone's like, they have to admit that he's the hero of the show, but they really don't want to, you know? Mm. So that was the um, original closing number. But the writers were like, I don't think we want to say that this show is about not being an asshole. And I was like, all right, <laughs> all right, fair enough. Can you tell us anything about the uh, future of King Kong in Japan? Oh, no, it's going to China, I think. Oh, China? Uh, Shanghai, yeah. Shang- Shanghai, okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, that, I, that, okay. I have no idea. Yeah, so I, they I haven't know, had you I come know. back and rewrite some songs or think of, rethink some things? or. No, no, I don't. Yeah, it's kind of one of those weird things where, like, I'm sort of out the door and, and I, I find out things when they, you know, like, within, you know, kind of like when everyone else does, really. So I don't know whether it's going to go with my songs. I don't know whether it's going to be a shortened version. I don't know if it'll be the full version. I really have no idea on Kong. I'm just kind of trying to practice Zen non-attachment when sure. it comes to that gig because... Who knows? Who knows? That's a very different market, and I can't pretend to understand the Chinese market. So I don't know. It might just be Kong, and it might, I don't. I really don't know. What's coming up for you? Uh, do you working on anything that you want to uh, mention? Or uh, often there's a lot of things that you know they're kind of in the hop. You don't want to talk about just yet. Well, nothing's kind of materialized yet, but um, uh, it's you know knowing. So it was, well, it was four years with Beetlejuice, and now I'm right back at the beginning, and um, I'm trying to work out what it is I want to write next. And I don't know exactly, but I'm doing a bit of research on a couple of ideas, um, which is kind of really enjoyable, and I'm trying to um, sort of take my time and figure out what I want to do. But I know whatever I do next, I want it to be um, not an adaptation of a film, to musical not because there's anything wrong with that but just because I, i've done that now um sort of three times in a row and um you know you you spend a lot of time and energy trying to um uh solve um problems that are specific to the source material mm-hmm. you know what are the rule? what you know with beetlejuice it was the rules like jesus it was like you know um what happens when you die? Who can see a ghost? When can they see a ghost? What is Beetlejuice? When is he? What What does saying his name three times mean? Does he become alive, or does he become visible? What's going to make him alive? You know, all that kind of stuff, um, which is fine, but it's but it's laborious, and they're not your rules. And mm-hmm. there have been certain times where we would have liked to have gone, you know, left when, but we had to kind of go right, um, and that's just what comes from adapting. Uh, source material but i'm really excited by the idea of just making something up and then you can go wherever you like i mean sure um the blank page is a little blanker but i am excited by yeah the idea of just collaborating with a really smart book writer and um we spent a long time with beetlejuice talking about the nature of offense and you know we dealt with um the issue of offending people in washington dc quite a lot and it and a lot of our original um, reviews were, f- were from critics who were quite clearly offended by the material. And then that offence had a had a very, um, yeah, um, a, a very profound effect on how the show developed for Broadway. We were always either dealing with offence or anticipating offence or trying to decipher um, 
what jokes were offending people and what weren't. And, you know, I am not of the, oh, well, if one person's offended, then the joke needs to be thrown out um, camp. I'm of the, look, someone's going to get offended at some point and we just need to, you know, buckle ourselves up and decide what jokes we want to stand by and that are justified and that are, that are um, earned. Um, so I kind of, you know, this might make it sound like I'm about to say, I want to write something really non-offensive. I actually want to write something the opposite, something really quite um, dangerous. So, <laughs> Like um, along the lines of Book of Mormon or, you know, the um, South Park guys? Uh, <laughs> they, You know, uh, some people might be offended by Mormon and some people find it hysterical. No, I mean, I always, I found that hysterical. I mean, I don't. This is the weird thing. I mean, I, I have never sat in the theater and felt offended in my mm. life. Mm-hmm. I've gone. I don't dig. I don't dig this joke. You know, like I think this joke is punching down, or I think this joke is, you know, um, is not a joke. It's just. It's just kind of like a, an attempt to, you know, kind of be shocking or whatever. You know, but I've never like gone throwing my hands in the air and gone, oh, this is offensive. I mean, like, okay, I've never been offended, so I find it very weird. You know, I, I am um, not that kind of person. I mean, maybe the show will exist where I'm like, wow, this is really offensive. But I'm not kind of interested in offending people. But I would like to write something about um, about. Um, the, in, the 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 inherent kind of darkness that that is in human nature, and how you know we we think we are one thing, but under certain circumstances we could very well be another because we mostly exist in a reality where those extremes aren't tested in ourselves. Who would we be in certain circumstances? And history bears out that you know, horrible things have happened in humanity. And I think that is where, not by pretending like it's all rosy and we all, um, you know, love each other. It's in the, it's in the investigating the darkness that I think is, is important. And I also think that this sounds all very worthy, but I would like to investigate that stuff through comedy because I think that's the best best lens Mm -hmm. to do that. So yeah, I want to write some really dark shit, man, and uh, <laughs> and put it on Broadway. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Eddie, for joining us on Broadway Radio. <laughs> Listeners, to remind you, uh, the Beetlejuice original Broadway cast recording is now available in digital form at uh, Ghostlight Records. Uh, you'll be able to get it in the uh, in the physical form sometime soon. I don't have a date on that yet, but you can definitely hear it uh, uh, streaming on. Uh, at Ghostlight and get the uh, digital download as well. Um, Beetlejuice with uh, music and lyrics by Eddie Perfect. Eddie can be found on Twitter at Eddie Perfect, on Instagram at Edmund Perfect, E D M U N D Perfect, uh, on Instagram. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. We'd love to have you back soon. Oh, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Do you hear that sound? That beautiful sound. That is the sound of clean white shorts turning brown. Torture and pain, breaking a brain. A sound that says, I will never sleep well again. The sound of a scream is music to me. A 
Someone's at the door. You want to answer it this time? More than anything. Don't oversell it. Act natural.